Welcome to the first episode of the second season of Musonomics. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. It's been a few weeks since our last episode, and we're back with a slew of great new shows. In this episode, we're taking a look at how YouTube became the biggest music streaming site in the world. We'll chat with media analyst Rich Greenfield about YouTube's codependent relationship with the music industry and what the future holds for the streaming giant. A billion four people use YouTube every month. You don't need a very high penetration rate of paid to free subscribers to have one of the world's largest subscription businesses. And we'll take a look at YouTube's new subscription service, YouTube Red, and tell you what it has to offer and what that might mean for the competition. But before we get into how labels and artists are harnessing the power of YouTube, first, let's take a look at how YouTube got all that power. On April 23, 2005, a video called Me at the Zoo was uploaded to a brand new and virtually unknown video sharing site called YouTube. A kid in a black and red jacket stands in front of an elephant enclosure. He takes a glance behind him. All right, so here we are in front of the uh, elephants. The cool thing about these guys is, they, is that they have really, really, really long um, trunks, and that's, that's cool. The kid looks back at the elephants one more time. And that's pretty much all there is to say. The kid in that video is Jawed Karim, one of YouTube's three founders. They were originally trying to build a video version of an online dating site similar to Hot or Not. But after the site went live and people started posting whatever they wanted, the three founders agreed that YouTube's standout quality was that anyone could upload content that everyone else could view. As one of YouTube's founders, Chad Hurley, told Time magazine in 2006, in the end, we just sat back. YouTube took off. MySpace users began linking to YouTube, and YouTube fed off of MySpace's growth. Within a year, investors began to call, and in October of 2006, Google acquired YouTube for about $1.65 billion. In just two years' time, YouTube morphed from a semi-functional imitation of a dating service to the preordained messiah of media sharing and consumption. Over the next year, YouTube continued to explode. It was fast becoming the place to find video content online. Need to watch a car crash from the view of a Russian dash cam? YouTube's got it. Want to check out the latest cat-related viral sensation? YouTube's got that, too. Want to see on-the-ground videos from a natural disaster? YouTube has it covered. But perhaps most importantly for the purposes of our show, if you wanted to hear a new song, YouTube was and is almost guaranteed to have it in some shape or form. Artists began to use YouTube to promote their music, uploading music videos, lyric videos, and engaging with their fan base in a whole new way. At the same time, fan bases expressed their fandom by uploading lip syncs, covers, 
or just re-uploading their favorite song to share with the whole world. And as you might expect, all that free and unrestricted sharing did not go over well with rights holders. In March of 2007, Viacom, owner of MTV Networks, Nickelodeon, and BET, sued YouTube for massive copyright infringement. And they had a legitimate point. In the eyes of Viacom, YouTube was nothing more than a platform for piracy. A video of a kid dancing to Prince is technically just an illegal copy of that Prince song, and the people who hold the rights to that Prince song deserve to be paid for the work. Viacom ordered leaked video clips of their shows be taken off YouTube and claimed that YouTube was responsible for the piracy of over 160,000 items from Viacom's entertainment catalog and was seeking more than $1 billion in damages. But YouTube had a ready-made defense. In 1998, President Clinton signed the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. From here on out, we'll call it the DMCA. The DMCA made it illegal to distribute technology, devices, or services intended to circumvent measures that control access to copyrighted works. In many ways, that's exactly what YouTube was doing, providing copyrighted content for free without compensating rights holders. But the DMCA also includes a safe harbor that protects online and internet service providers against copyright infringement liability as long as the provider takes down infringing material when notified of the infringement by rights holders. The safe harbor was designed to protect internet service providers from prosecution for the copyright infringement that takes place on their networks that they cannot control. In other words, it protects Time Warner Cable from being sued by Metallica when a user torrents the band's entire discography while using a Time Warner broadband connection. YouTube, in a sense, is a service provider. They provide access to a network where users can upload whatever they want. Thanks to the DMCA safe harbor, this interpretation of YouTube's role means they couldn't be held responsible for that infringing content. Considering the sheer volume of uploaded videos, how was YouTube to know what was copyrighted content and what wasn't? As the court case marched along, YouTube continued to grow launching in nine countries by June of 2007. Then, in January of 2008, YouTube and Viacom reached an agreement over damages. YouTube developed a new system called Content ID that would scan user uploads for copyrighted content and flag those videos for copyright infringement. In theory, this allowed YouTube to flag copyrighted infringement much earlier and with much more frequency which turned out to be enough to get Viacom to agree not to seek damages. Among other things, Content ID also enables rights holders to monetize their content by sharing ad revenue with YouTube. The case continued, but YouTube would not have to pay Viacom any actual money. In the meantime, YouTube was cementing itself as a cornerstone of popular culture and an integral part of mass media consumption as the de facto site for video content. Between October of 2009 and May of 2010, YouTube doubled its daily views from 1 billion to 2 billion. During the same time period, Sony and Universal Music 
two of the big three music labels, launched Vivo, a service that distributes music videos to YouTube and elsewhere. To this day, the music-centric Vivo is responsible for a large chunk of YouTube's traffic. In 2015, over 9 billion video views a month. But back to the Viacom case. In June of 2010, the U.S. Southern District Court of New York found in favor of YouTube, upholding the company's assertion that it was protected by the DMCA safe harbor. YouTube's growth continued to skyrocket. In May of 2011, they were at 3 billion daily views, and in December of that year, YouTube got its first major site redesign. Just one month later, YouTube hit 4 billion daily views. And then came this. Open Gangnam Style! In 2012, South Korean pop star Psy's video for Gangnam Style became the first YouTube video to hit 1 billion views, something that illustrates a stark and undeniable truth in the YouTube story, that YouTube's most successful, most popular videos, search terms, and content are all music or music-related. In 2014, music was the most searched for topic on all of YouTube, with 236 million searches. Drake came in fourth, Beyonce fifth, and Happy seventh. YouTube has become a hub of music discovery as well, dominating the key demographics for music, attracting more adults aged 18 to 34 than any single cable network. YouTube is now 10 years old, and in that short decade, has become by far the biggest on-demand streaming service. And it's growing faster now than Spotify or any of its competitors. Even through the first half of this year, YouTube's growth rate is faster than it's ever been in Europe and in the United States. We'll be right back with more on YouTube and our chat with media analyst Rich Greenfield right after this. Here at Musonomics, we'd like to know more about you. So we've posted a brief listener survey at musonomics.com survey. What we learn about you will help make a more responsive, sustainable podcast. So visit musonomics.com survey and tell us about yourself. Thanks in advance for participating. To get insight on YouTube's current report card and prospects for its future, we caught up with Rich Greenfield of BTIG at his office in Manhattan, right off the trading floor. Rich has been a media and technology equity research analyst since 1995. Getting right down to business, Rich, what impact do you think YouTube has today on music discovery and consumption? Well, I mean, just think YouTube in and of itself is actually the second largest search engine in the world, Google being the first, but YouTube being the second. Um, I think enabling consumers all over the world to simply have a little search window where they enter in a few words of a song they want to hear, and they instantly have access to that artist, the song, the album, it's just easy. And it works so well uh, across so many devices. But I think just YouTube providing essentially the world's music at no cost, at a click of a button, uh, is an amazing value proposition to the consumer. And you know they keep enhancing the quality of the service 
speed of loading, buffering. I mean, it just, it works really well. And I think, you know, they were the early leader, obviously. They got out in front. They basically became MTV for a generation from a music video standpoint. And I think just, you know, right place, right time in terms of giving access to exactly what consumers wanted, which is random access whenever they wanted to for music. YouTube's able to monetize music and other content at rates that are lower than they are for the other services that they compete with as a result of settlements made, like uh, the Viacom DMCA litigation. What's your point of view about the right price or the right rate? I think you have to step back, right? Music content on the radio was promotional, where music basically wasn't paid in this country for radio. Copyright holders were paid, but you know the actual artist itself wasn't paid. It was promotional. When MTV started, obviously a massive cable network in many ways was one of the drivers early on of the entire cable network ecosystem, and MTV didn't pay for its music videos. They were promotional. Uh, they provided you know, the ability for the artist to tour and to raise the visibility to then sell albums and whatnot. I think when you look at YouTube, you know, the challenge is, is that because of the growth rate that you cited just a couple of minutes ago, the exposure that having your content on YouTube provides is massive. Think about Gangnam Style. Think about what YouTube did to that video and to that artist and how it put it on a whole nother level. The ability for YouTube to create and build stars, superstars, is pretty unique. And so, you know, you could complain about the rate paid, for sure, but you could also compare it to the fact that no one ever got paid for a music video on MTV and no one ever gets paid today for a song on the radio. Those are similar forms of promotion. YouTube monetizes dramatically better than that. And I would actually argue YouTube's monetization of music has gotten notably better over the last five years. And Vivo didn't exist, right? And so a way of aggregating some of the top quality talent and making it a premium ad buy versus just being thrown into the kind of remnant inventory that all of YouTube is kind of monetized at. And so I don't think it's nearly as bad as it sounds. You know, there is monetization happening. Is anyone retiring um, or making their entire living purely off of YouTube and happy about it, I, I doubt it. But I would think if you were to look at the amount of visibility that from a Taylor Swift to a Macklemore gets off of YouTube and how they then turn that into touring revenue and other parts of their own personal brand, I don't see a lot of complaining. I'm sure everybody would like to get paid more. Uh, the question is, is you know, that give and take of, you could take your music off the radio, right? You know, because you don't get paid for it, but is that a wise thing to do if you're an artist and you really want to make your money on touring? Which the interesting issue you raise is music labels have struggled over the last, call it decade. But as an artist, the amount of money consumers are spending on music today versus 10 years ago versus 20 years ago is dramatically higher. Just not going to the purchase of an album but people are spending more time with music. Music's more accessible today than it's ever been, and the ability for some random person out in the world to be able to become famous has been enabled by technology. That same technology that we could talk about not paying enough in a split has enabled you know, someone like Macklemore, someone like you know, Psy, to become globally famous. 
that wasn't possible 20 years ago without going through the traditional ecosystem. And so, uh, you know, I think there's obviously problems, but I think there's also been tremendous success that's been created by it. Certain artists who complain about, for example, the pay rates of Spotify are noticeably silent on YouTube pay rates. Which I think is incredible, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's a game of whack-a-mole, right? You could take your music down, but you, you, you cited the DMCA earlier in this discussion. You, could, you, you, know, you can request that your song gets taken down, but two seconds later, you know, whether it's someone uploading the artist's video, or even better yet, somebody literally recording their own version of it and uploading it, how do you stop it? I mean, the amount, I think it's 400 hours of YouTube content is uploaded every minute. I mean, it, you can't stop it. I mean, it, you know, it, it, you try to, it's like stopping the internet. It's funny how artists take such a harsh attack on things like Spotify, but then don't take it on YouTube. And I think, you know, part of it is they're not sure how to stop YouTube, right? Because it's part of so ingrained in their you know, in, in the music video culture of like everybody wants to create a music video, um, whereas Spotify has direct licenses. You know, it doesn't even fit under the radio rules that Pandora has or that, you know, online digital music has. And so I think in some ways, the fact that it falls under, you know, kind of promo, video promo, somehow sits differently in people's minds. And it's been surprising. You know, Irving Azoff tried. You know, he he pushed back hard on some of you know on players like YouTube, and you know it's unclear where those discussions go. But that's again more on the copyright holder side than it is on the recording artist side. We really haven't seen any recording artists push back hard on YouTube. Indeed, and since you mentioned it, have you taken a look at Vivo? Is that an interesting business model? I think Vivo is very interesting. I mean, I think the challenge they face is that they want to be the repository of all major label music. The challenge is they're missing Warner. And so, you know, in many ways, if you were to look at Vivo, you'd say the right strategy would be to take your music off YouTube and build the music label's own version have a complete hub where it's everything music. It's the music video, it's streaming music, audio, it's, it's offline access, it's artists, backgrounds, it's tour tickets. Like it, it, it literally is that online hub for music. The challenge is, is, you know, when you go to it and you type in a Warner Music artist and it says not available, that experience is hard to fathom. Not to mention it would also require investment. So you have to have the partners, meaning the music labels, just at a time when they're starting to come out of a kind of decade-long challenging period for music, just as things are starting to look better, to dig back in and actually invest versus just take the dollars that are coming in. Even if you don't love the dollars, still taking the dollars that are coming in from your partnership with YouTube. And so, you know, I think Vivo's at this interesting point in time. They have new management. I think they're trying to figure out where do they go from here. There's a number of opportunities, and I think you know part of the real story will be can they convince Warner to finally come on board. And even without Warner, in 2013, I read that Vivo did about three and a quarter billion dollars in revenue. Look, it could be a very large business. You know, I think we know that music is still the largest single um, component of YouTube. You know, I've seen statistics that you know talk to the fact that five plus percent of, uh, of all of YouTube is artist music. You probably have another five to 10% that is people uploading their own versions of music. And so, you know, you probably could get to 15, maybe even 20% of overall 
um, consumption on YouTube is music. So music's integral to YouTube's success. I think the question becomes, at any point do the labels really want to take control of that and build a larger business, or do they want to just leave that in YouTube's world? And maybe it's too late. Maybe just, you know, building, you know, we all take for granted when you click on a YouTube video, it just plays. And it doesn't just play on your PC, it plays on your phone, on your tablet, it plays in the US, it plays in Brazil, it, it just works. That's really valuable. Again, if you're thinking about it from the artist standpoint, what are you trying to do? You're trying to sell tickets, you're trying to, to monetize your celebrity. The challenge of trying to build it all yourself and making it just work is not an insignificant task. What do you think about a paid YouTube music subscription service? YouTube Music Key launched, I guess, beta launched about a year ago, and has been relatively quiet, at least so far, up through the big announcement they're making today. I think YouTube's been challenged to figure out how do you segregate out music and what defines music. You know, this gets back to user-uploaded music versus fan-uploaded. I mean, you know, think of the song, what was her name, Rebecca Black and Friday. So she uploads that song. Does that fall into the music category and the music subscription service? And do the four quadrillion response videos making fun of her, essentially, does that fall under music subscription? Like, how do you draw a line? You know, YouTube and the responses are such a vital part of what YouTube is. I think drawing a line and saying, well, this is music and this isn't is hard. And so I think what you'll see is that music key disappears and that you see YouTube essentially creates an ad-free offline access with some exclusive content that covers all of YouTube. And remember, a billion four people use YouTube every month. You don't need a very high penetration rate of paid to free subscribers to have one of the world's largest subscription businesses. How important do you think exclusive content is to YouTube? Well, I would frame it a different way. In the media universe, the reasons why you generally subscribe to something is because of the exclusive content. You end up watching lots of the other content. You know, when you think about HBO, there's lots of content that, you know, movies that you could see in the theaters, movies that you could buy on iTunes. There's lots of content that is available um, in other places. But what gets you to subscribe is the exclusive, unique content. Game of Thrones, if you want to see this season's first episode, the only place to get it is on HBO. I mean, obviously there's piracy and other illicit ways to do it. But from a legal standpoint, there's one way to do it, you know, at that moment when it comes out. I think, you know, so I think any good media business, you know, um, that has built a subscription looks for ways to differentiate itself. So what do you think is the right price for a bundled subscription offer that comes from YouTube? Oh, look, I, I think there's plenty of proof that kind of $10 feels like a sort of magic number, and the lower than 10 you are, the better. But I don't think there is a, you know, be all end all. I think part of the problem is it's not clear how much cost there is to the music label. So it's, it's not clear what YouTube has to price this at to deal with all the costs they clearly have as part of it, just knowing what other music services get paid. But I, I would think $10 or less would be phenomenal. Um, if you start to get much above 12, you start to get concerned. You know, I think one of the things HBO struggles with with HBO now is being an a la carte direct-to-consumer at $15 is not easy. It's not impossible. You're going to get people, but it's more expensive. I think if the price point was $10, it would be easier to sell.
Rich, what do you think the value of YouTube is to Google or to Google's investors? I think YouTube is a very important asset because it's one of the few platforms where monetization from desktop to mobile translates. And, you know, we think about Google Display or even Search, it's not as simple of a translation. YouTube may even work better in many ways on mobile. I mean, you're staring at a full motion video ad seven inches from or five inches from your face. That's a very engaging ad unit. Uh, and TrueView works the same on desktop as it works on on mobile and so mobile video is exploding. I mean the future of video is clearly mobile. There's no, I don't think there's anyone that can really debate that point looking at what's happened over the last couple of years with live TV ratings declining and time spent on mobile exploding. Mobile video is the future. Look at what Facebook is doing. Look at what Google's doing. Look at what Snapchat is doing. This is a tremendously important asset for Google. I mean, you know, I think, you know, there's probably revenue that approaches or exceeds now six plus billion dollars a year, that may not be the highest margin revenue obviously within Google, but as a growth, this is one of the fastest growing parts of Google. That really provides them with a differentiated mobile platform. And I think that word mobile being critical, right? That, you know, most of the big media companies as they look at mobile are struggling to gain, you know, a home page app that you use on a daily or even hourly basis. Can you name one? For big media companies, you know, in some ways you could say the weather channel, but that w isn't video driven, it's check the weather. Uh, you could say score center for ESPN, you know, their sports center app, but it's not video driven, it's really news driven. Finding a video driven app from a major media company that appears on most people's home screens doesn't exist. You know, those things are Facebook. Those things are Snapchat, YouTube, a great example. So no, I think that's one of the real challenges and that's what makes YouTube, getting back to your question, Larry, about the value. This is a very valuable asset and I think it's why you're seeing so much emphasis uh, within Google on talking about how successful YouTube is. I think a lot of people don't realize just how big a business YouTube is, and it's still very early. Look, music consumption has exploded, and that, I keep coming back to music has never been more accessible. Um, the depth of the catalog, I mean, you have the world's catalog you know, in your pocket every single day, and whether it's music videos or whether it's audio, it's only getting more accessible uh, on more devices all over the world. And that's the opportunity is then figuring out, going back to the Vivo discussion, uh, what's the ultimate monetization of all of this great IP over time? And I think we're still very early in that discussion, but I think a subscription platform on YouTube is a good first step. YouTube is 10 years old now. Hard to believe. Where do you think YouTube goes from here? Well, look, the more the multi-channel bundle of you know TV breaks down, the more opportunity it creates for um, content creators, artists, to build their own businesses. You know, look at what Glenn Beck did with The Blaze. I think the question will be, look at how WWE has gone out and built their own direct-to-consumer business. I think it'll be interesting as YouTube gets into the subscription business, whether we start to see verticals arise or individual creators try to build off of the YouTube platform and try to leverage that into their own businesses because you know, there used to be gatekeepers called cable companies, the satellite companies, or even the cable networks themselves, and getting a show on a cable network was the gatekeeper. In the world that we're talking about, there are no gatekeepers, right? It's just up to how good your content is and can you create a following, and time will tell, but I think, my guess is in 10 years we'll be talking about 
the rise of um, talent direct to consumer and the ability for, you know, how does YouTube foster that innovation? Rich Greenfield, thanks for visiting with us. In that interview, Rich Greenfield made some predictions about YouTube's proposed streaming service, namely that it would have an offline mode, encompass the entirety of YouTube, and that it would likely cost about $10 per month. As it turns out, he was right on all three counts. Just a few hours after we wrapped our interview with Rich, YouTube announced a new subscription service at an event in Los Angeles. The service will be called YouTube Red, and it's already being called a Spotify and Netflix killer. As Rich predicted, the service will cost $10 per month, matching the price point established by the other streaming services, except in the Apple App Store, where a subscription will cost $12.99, thanks to Apple's demand to take 30% of all subscription prices. Also, like Rich predicted, YouTube Red doesn't offer solely music content or solely video content. YouTube Red will encompass the entirety of YouTube and Google Play Music, all ad-free. So YouTube Red officially brings an end to Music Key, which will be folded into the new service, though apparently a music-specific service is still reportedly in the works. If only 10% of YouTube users sign up for the new service, YouTube Red will be bigger than Spotify and every other interactive music service. But it's not all smooth sailing just yet. YouTube's new partner agreement states that YouTube will pay content owners 55% of total net revenues from YouTube Red subscriptions, a figure that is significantly lower than both Spotify and Apple Music. As of October 22nd, the final day for rights holders to agree to the new terms to keep their content from being pulled or hidden, Music Business Worldwide was reporting that not all independent labels had signed the new deal. From our perspective, YouTube Red seems like a pretty good deal. $10 a month for ad-free YouTube and a Spotify-like streaming service provides good quantity and quality of content at a price point that has proved effective in this market. What's still to be seen is whether all that potential success can be converted into actual success. But YouTube has a pedigree of success. Like Rich Greenfield said, it just works. What started as a semi-functional dating site has become the de facto location for video consumption in the Internet age. YouTube has created a service that has the potential to compete and reset the basis of competition in streaming services and light up our screens for years to come. 13th voice. 13th voix. Sounds. That's our show. Thanks again to Rich Greenfield of BTIG for sharing his insight. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a great rating and review on iTunes. Those reviews really do help others discover the podcast. The Musonomics Podcast is a production of Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. 
the Musonomics podcast is produced at NYU Steinhardt by Sam Behrens and Travis Fodor, with help from Charlotte Leclerc, Alonzo Villagomez, Karina Barroso, Matt Jong, Kiana Agina, Saroshri Dasgupta, Rosa Yibing, Blair Ador, Yasemin Kosei-Resolu, Chudi Choi, Camille Delaney, Julian Duque, and Samantha Tubner. Thanks to Ron Sadoff and Catherine Moore. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening. Thank you.